Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the podcast that laughs in the face of politics, only for politics to laugh with it, causing me to say, um, no wait, we were definitely laughing at you. This is episode 116, I'm Tiernan Duyeb, and this week, as Prime Minister and the only person in the world whose reflection has more depth than she does, that's right, Theresa May, says this is the time for cool, calm heads to prevail, I ask, is this once again just her way of saying she's going to lead an army of robots to rule over all of us? And if this is further definite proof of her animatronic workings, how do we reprogram her to stop her getting frozen on Brexit like it's some sort of Y2K bug? Once again, the Prime Minister took to Parliament to tell them that absolutely nothing has got anywhere, no one has progressed on anything, but that the UK and EU are arguing about something that may not happen in case it does happen if the rest of the negotiations ever move anywhere, allowing it to get to the point where that could be the case if it was ever likely. Brexit Minister and love child of Vaseline and a sausage, Dominic Raab, raced to Brussels on Sunday to meet with Chief Negotiator and stock photo of your father-in-law you don't get on with, Michel Barnier, only for them to not come to any decent conclusions whatsoever. Now this is apparently because the EU won't accept the UK's backstop without their backstop also in place, like a sort of double backstop or a back back stop stop, which incidentally are also the instructions the UK government won't listen to when walking near a cliff edge. I personally think Rob actually made the trip on a Sunday because someone pranked him and said it was already Monday in Belgium and he still has no idea how time zones work. As of last week, various cabinet ministers were threatening to resign if Theresa May went ahead with her proposed Brexit backstop deal, because nothing fixes the possibility of a temporary plan becoming a permanent one due to lack of other plans, like people throwing a tantrum and walking out and being even more unhelpful. This supposed walkout was led by ex-Brexit secretary and visible fart on a cold day, David Davis, which is why it hasn't happened, and he'll no doubt say it was never going to happen before saying he has notes that said it definitely was, but no one can see them or it'd give his advantage away. Across the small water, the political wing of M. Night Shyamalan's The Village, aka the DUP, are still demanding that they get the same deal as the rest of the UK. And they abstained on a vote on the agricultural bill instead of backing the Conservatives for the first time since they agreed to prop up a government, like some sort of very angry crutch. Which instantly is also a good description for most DUP members. This abstaining was said to be a warning shot, something that should not be misjudged in Northern Ireland, for a possible blocking of the upcoming budget by the DUP, meaning the Conservatives wouldn't be able to pass it and it could lead to a no confidence vote for Theresa May, a woman who absolutely no one has confidence in already. Leader and resting smacked face Arlene Foster also met with Michel Barnier last week and said he was difficult and hostile, which presumably means she asked him to then join her party as a promising DUP election candidate. Foster said the meeting has led her to believe a no-deal scenario is now most likely, but I'm not sure we should trust her, a woman who is one of the main reasons Northern Ireland still doesn't have an assembly, to give us her gut instincts on how negotiations between two groups are going. She may not be wrong though, as ministers have been told to make no-deal preparations, which depending on who you are is either stockpiling food and medicines, or preparing for winter by wrapping yourself in a union jack and singing God save the Queen till the cold goes away. The EU too have planned a no-deal emergency summit in November, where they will meet to discuss what would happen if the UK crashed out, and what is the best popcorn to eat while watching it happen. 
SNP leader and everyone's least favourite Osmond, Nicola Sturgeon, has called for an extension of the 21-month Brexit transition period to get a common-sense future with the EU, which is a terrible catchphrase if you're trying to pitch it to Conservatives who will hear the first half of that word, common sense, and immediately just try and take the proposal's benefits away. In news that sounds related but surprisingly isn't, the Prime Minister has unveiled plans to tackle loneliness, which, based on her Brexit stance, will be to suggest that you drive all your close friends away, blame them for it, and then just keep telling yourself you'll be fine as you die from a lack of insulin. One of May's plans is for postal workers to identify and check on elderly people as they do their rounds, which is a great plan because I can't imagine anything more comforting if you're lonely than finding a delivery note in your door telling you that they just assumed you weren't in but couldn't be bothered to ring the doorbell to check. Other plans include getting GPs to send lonely patients to art classes or community groups, you know, all the things the government cut funding for and have now all closed, or to prescribe dance lessons in the hope that if they get good enough and learn some sort of sense of rhythm, then they definitely won't become Prime Minister and be a challenge to May. Health Secretary and Bash Street Kid Matt Hancock has suggested that the way to beat the robot economy is to think like a dyslexic, but I doubt it as robots have autocorrect so that won't even phase them mate, I mean come on, try a bit harder. Hancock, who is dyslexic himself, says it's giving things a fresh perspective that will set humans apart. Yes, like the Matt Hancock app which tells the robots using their code exactly where he is at all time. Good luck surviving the robo-apocalypse Matt, I suspect you'll be first to go. In international news, the UK, France and Germany have called for an investigation into the disappearance of journalist Jamal Khashoggi, who, a critic of Saudi Arabia, vanished after visiting the consulate in Istanbul earlier this month. Though Turkish security sources say officials have audio and video that prove that Khashoggi was murdered as he recorded it with his Apple Watch when he entered the building, which is really smart and something that Tim Cook should totally advertise during the next Apple conference. About to get murdered? Well, the new Apple Watch will broadcast evidence of your death to all your friends and family and allow them to like or cry face emoji as it happens live. Britain haven't strongly condemned Saudi Arabia that much, despite it likely that they killed a journalist in another country, which is really terrifying stuff and a massive breach of human rights. It took Foreign Secretary and Cheese String Jeremy Hunt seven whole days to respond, and he mainly just said, well, we've asked Saudi Arabia and they haven't said anything about it, so... Weirdly, US President and inflamed tonsil Donald Trump was harsher, saying that he would punish Saudi Arabia if they were found responsible, though that is probably because he's just angry someone attacked a journalist without letting him join in. It's of course hugely likely that the UK government won't condemn Saudi Arabia because they buy so many weapons off us and then use them on the people in Yemen, which the UK then send aid to in the most pointless circle of events ever. It's like buying knives for gangs but saying you're counteracting it because you left some free plasters on a park bench. Speaking of pointless things, Donald Trump has now said that he no longer thinks climate change is a hoax, but he does think that climate scientists have a political agenda. Of course they do. It's in their very interest to campaign against a man whose incredible bright skin tone increases the Earth's core temperature all by itself. Trump's US ambassador to the UN and author of Can't Is Not An Option, a book of crosswords that never mentioned the German philosopher, probably, Nikki Haley, has resigned from her position after realising that as a female descendant of Indian immigrants, she could spend more time being less valued at home in America. And lastly, Labour leader and main cast of a 70s public information film about safety hazards in libraries, Jeremy Corbyn, has said that the impact of the British Empire should be taught in schools, so children learn about colonialism and the slave trade. I mean, I completely agree, but I do worry that if it's not done properly, kids will just think it's a term-long study on how Boris Johnson thinks and lose interest. And fracking has started near Blackpool after a legal challenge failed on Friday, which is, on one hand, in terms of the constant escalation of climate change and the risk to the environment and welfare of people nearby, really depressing. But on the other hand, a few earthquakes could really boost the excitement on some of the older rides on the Pleasure Beach. Climate Minister and woman who constantly looks like she's never entirely sure where she is, Claire Perry, said, Why would you want to import gas when you could create your own? And yes, I heard that and laughed like a child for a solid ten minutes. Hey, hey, pop champs! It is lovely to see you again. No, wait, that sounds a bit creepy, doesn't it? I mean, it implies that I can see you while you listen to this, which I can't. And I'll be honest, I really have no one to ever do. I mean, no offence, I'm sure you will look lovely. But, I mean, while I listen to podcasts, I'm mostly being incredibly boring and just sort of walking somewhere or, say, driving while trying to pull a very long nose hair out. Um, They are very long. I've no idea why this is happening to me now at this age, but I fear they're just sort of growing so they can weave into my beard as part of my slow descent into 
into becoming an overall wolfman. Or maybe they're just lonely and they want to be part of, I don't know, a bigger hair scene. What happens to nose hairs of people without beards? Do they grow long enough to kind of reach your head hair? Or worse, your armpit hair? Or maybe the hair of someone else? Wow, this is all really gross and terrifying. I'm sorry. Um, all I'm saying is I don't want to see what you're up to. Uh, so what I should say is that it's just lovely to sort of shout at you. Um, and yes, I know last week's show was a bit shouty. Sorry about that. It is my natural state of volume. And I usually remember to tone it down a bit when I'm just talking to a microphone in a room by myself. Um, I got told off doing TV warm-up stuff last week by the sound tech who came up to me and said, you do know you have a microphone, right? And I was like, yeah, I'm fully aware. I really just think it's in my DNA. I mean, my daughter seems excessively loud for a tiny baby and I often say to my wife why and how is she so loud for someone so small and then my wife just sort of looks at me and says you know why so there you go it's just just in the bones isn't it just naturally loud um thank you this week to Ollie for becoming a Patreon supporter which is hugely appreciated and if you too would like to donate a monthly um well anything even one dollar uh it's all in dollars uh still they haven't fixed that um if you'd like to donate even one dollar to this show then you could do that at patreon.com forward slash bro and with that equivalent of 76p i will put it towards making this show better um which with 76p i could uh pay a child to do some research for me for just under five minutes i mean i've got to pay living wage haven't i so that would sort of work out but i also probably shouldn't employ children as that's not okay um okay wait hang on i've got it i'll make the child do the research for free and i'll use the 76p to buy some crisps win please donate. Uh, you could also give me a one-off donation for the price of a coffee at ko-fi.com. That's ko-fi.com forward slash parpolebro if that's more your cup of uh, coffee, I guess. And if you can't afford to do any of those things, I will also accept uh, being able to ask you for a favour at any point in your life that you can't turn down. Uh, your firstborn child or, you know, maybe, maybe just review the show on your favourite pod app or tell people you know to listen in because, hey, look, I'm going to be honest with you, it's still only position 212 in the Botswana Apple podcast charts, and I can't believe people aren't sharing the goodness over there. Tlaia Batho, people, which I, I think means come on people, and then I said people at the end, so it's like Tlaia Batho, Batho. Anyway, look, the fact that I've completely mispronounced that and probably got the wrong words is probably exactly why it's still at 212. I'm sorry, Botswana. Um, also, this is very exciting, exciting, actual exciting stuff. Um, you can now tell people to listen to this podcast on Spotify. Yes, this podcast is now available on Spotify, which means you can just start adding it to playlists called things like Motivation for Idiots or Music to Listen to When Having a Panic Attack or whatever people name shit as on there. And then you can share them just to really confuse people um the only other bit of admin i've got this week is that next week i am hosting a gig called choose laughs that i've mentioned before on the show uh, to raise money for help refugees and that is at the backyard comedy club in bethnal green on wednesday 24th of october and it's got a brilliant lineup of fern brady dane baptiste tony law lou sanders and someone else i can't remember because i forgot to have it up on the screen while recording this like a total and utter amateur but they're really good as well they're a really good person whoever they are um it's going to be an excellent gig though and as podcast listeners here's a nice offer you can get three pound off the ticket price if you use the code parpolebro all in capitals on the ticket text website when you find the event page uh, which you can do by typing in choose laughs and it will come up that's how the internet works um of course though i should say the geek is for charity so by having three pound off that does make you an awful person who's stealing from refugees uh, i'm just saying you know but feel free to use that code and kick people while they're already really down you utter bastards um hope to see you there a briefish podcast this week um, with no headlines because I'll be honest, I've got a sore throat thingy at the moment that apparently loads of people have. I've been I've seen on the social medias um, and it feels a bit like I've gargled razor blades, which I haven't done, even though having a beard means I have little other use for my razors and I do hate waste. Um, but it's not that fun to talk lots. So instead uh, on this show, no headlines. Uh, I am, however, talking to Owen Espley from War on Want all about the strike that happened last week and why the geek economy is well bad. Um, also, there is another look at just how awful Universal Credit still is. I know I've looked at it on this show before, but it turns out, still shit. I know, still shit. Um, and yet, there's no Brexit fallout this week, because why not just listen to last week's one again and imagine even more people are unhappy, and that's kind of where we are. It does really bother me that one of the main British values that we do actually have as a nation is saying sorry way too often and being far too reserved when in some sort of awkward situation. And I think that by not playing to either of those and just 
heading to the negotiations and going, oh, uh, I'm really sorry, I didn't really mean any of this. Um, no, you just go ahead, you go ahead, do what you need to do, I will stand outside. By not doing that, Theresa May is demeaning the entire country. There, I've said it. Oh, and there's nothing about the royal baby, because A, I don't care, B, it's not about politics, and C, I'm choosing to pretend it's a well-timed conspiracy by the government because it's due in spring, and people will foam at the mouth at a royal baby Brexit whammy, and while they're all kind of, like, completely foamy out the mouth and going completely bonkers in their really crap street parties with whatever rations that we're still allowed to have, then no one is going to notice that still the government has done absolutely nothing useful. Conspiracy. Conspiracy shenanigans. That's when I cry like a royal baby will. Um, what am I talking about? Who knows? I've got a sore throat. Anyway, and now, this. One of the biggest contradictions of the McDonald's global fast food chain, aside, of course, from the fact that Happy Meals are getting healthier, but somehow they're still happy. Hmm, yeah, right. Or the fries that are somehow both Moorish and completely tasteless all at once. One of the biggest contradictions, apart from those, is the I'm loving it slogan plastered across the apparel of staff who are working for less than fair wages. To make underpaid workers insist to the world that actually they love their less than living wage job is akin to if Curry's PC World staff wore t-shirts that said, no, please do ask me anything, I do know what I'm talking about and I promise I won't just wander off when you ask me a question and never ever return. October the 4th saw the first nationwide McStrike, which no, isn't a series of flammable or violent fast food products, but instead a day of action with workers, not just from McDonald's, but also Weatherspoons, TGI Friday, Uber Eats and Deliveroo, taking on the massive corporations that hired them and campaigning for better pay and conditions, all organised by War on Want, Unite and the Baker's Food and Allied Workers Union. Workers from eight cities across the UK staged a walkout, making the fast food in the restaurants a damn sight slower, as a message to their employers who are already peeved enough that it's being called a McStrike, as they know that branding is absolutely everything. The number of workers on zero-hour contracts in the UK has tripled since 2012, and anyone with a basic maths knowledge can tell you that 901,000 times zero equals a shit-ton of a lack of stability and an awful load of no-employment rights. So, this week I spoke to Owen Espley at War on Once, a charity that fights against the root causes of global poverty, inequality and injustice, and one of the groups who helped organise the McStrike in the first place. I asked Owen all about why fast food workers were angry, what the gig economy means for the country's economy overall, and of course the dreaded question of how Brexit may affect workers' rights, and how is it those fries do taste of something, but also nothing at all, all at once? Okay, I didn't ask him that last question, as let's face it, it's not relevant, and no one is ever going to know. I mean, that is like one of life's mysteries. But I'm sure you'll find this chat as informative as I did, as Owen explained just why unions really are so important. Here is Owen. Over the past year and a half, I know there have been quite a few uh, McStrikes that have led to various things like McDonald's uh, increasing staff wages. I know one was about the unions. And what was the recent McStrike for? And why was staff from TJ Friday's Weatherspoons and other companies also involved? Yeah, so on the 4th of October, we saw a really exciting day where workers at four different McDonald's, at three different TGI Fridays, and two Weatherspoons workers all came out on strike on the same day. They were striking... Um, because basically the workers are fed up with the conditions that they face. And they were calling for change right across the hospitality industry. They were calling in particular for a minimum wage of £10 an hour that should apply to everyone, including people on young people. Um, and they were also calling for their right to a union to be respected, that they want a voice at work and they want their employers, who are very profitable, to give them that collective voice to be able to work through issues in the workplace. And was there a good outcome from the strike action? Has there been any immediate change? So when, in terms of Weatherspoons, when the workers first announced the ballot, that they were balloting for action, the, the company actually moved forward its pay, uh, annual pay increase to, to give a pay increase and abolish some of the youth rates. So 18 to 21-year-olds would no longer be paid a slower rate. And this clearly looked like it was in response to the unions organising into a trade union um, and was a positive move. Yeah, because, I mean, obviously uh, it made quite an impact on on social media. Quite a lot of people were talking about uh, the McStrike and, you know, obviously suddenly there were a whole load of restaurants and and bars and things that people couldn't use for an entire day. That must have have meant something. It probably cost those companies quite a lot of business. They must have had to stand up and take notice. Yeah, I think what we're seeing really is a growing movement of workers, you know, in hospitality who are saying enough's enough. When we come together and into trade unions, 
we're the ones who actually have the power to create change. And they're saying in sectors that haven't been uh, unionized and haven't seen this kind of worker uh, collective action in the past. And they're saying that we are coming together and we have the power and enough's enough and it's time for change in these industries. We've had enough of low pay. We've had enough of precarious contracts that mean workers don't have the security of knowing they're going to get the hours they need to survive. Um, and also that they want that collective voice at work. They want uh, a union. They want the companies to respect uh, and sit down with you know, democratically elected representatives within a union to discuss the issues that those workers face at work. And that's what's really important and powerful about these different MERC strikes. The, the third one was on October. The first one was only last September, just over a year ago, when two McDonald's went out on strike. Then on the 1st of May, International Workers' Day, five McDonald's restaurants went out on strike. Shortly after that, we saw TGI Friday's workers who are in Unite the Union um, go out on strike over their tips policy. They'd seen their tips. 40% um, of front of house credit card tips taken away really to prop up um, the pay of kitchen staff who are suffering from low wages. And so what we're seeing is that workers are saying actually the way to create change in these conditions is no longer to just accept it or try and sidle up to the boss so you get treated okay. It's to say this is a problem right across our sector and when we come together, when we take action together, we can make that claim much more strongly and much more powerfully. And so workers are in touch with these unions and more workers, you know, as it went out on social media like you've referenced and it went out across the real media as well, these workers are speaking up, standing up for themselves and saying we want change and it's time to have that change and they're saying that we're the ones to, to drive that change going forward and i mean it's, it's been quite a lot in the kind of political sphere for the last couple of years now about uh gig economy and zero hours and uh amazon just recently raised their minimum wage for uk and us workers is that a good sign that companies attitudes towards workers pay is improving or is it still i mean are we still not there yet um i think it's interesting that amazon have moved on pay obviously uh a lot of that, I think, is driven through the big movement that we've seen called Fight for 15, $15 and a union in the US, of low-paid workers rising up and saying, we want change and we want a minimum wage that we can live on. And I think Amazon's responding to that. And I think it's an important win for those um, workers who've been taking action. And Amazon really is an important company. It's an important company in the sense that it... Um, one, its owner is incredibly rich. Two, it's really shaping the future of the workplaces you know, of the 21st century. And that's where their vision is, I think, is to implement it. But an increase in wages is welcome. But without a union, we're not going to be able to really understand whether the ways in which that company is trying to shape the marketplace of the future is going to be one which benefits working people or one which extracts wealth from working people and the work that they do. And so it's welcome. It's a step in the right direction. It certainly sends a strong message to the companies like McDonald's that it's time for them to get their act house in order and pay their workers a wage that they can live on as well. But it's a step in the right direction. It's not won the battle. It's a battle, but it's not the, the war that's been won yet. Sure. And as you said, I suppose without a union, once they've done this increase, they might not do another one for however long and it might not keep in line with, uh, you know, cost of living or whatever, because it's they haven't got anyone to kind of fight for workers' rights from now on. Yeah, I think that, that obviously, you know, one of the reasons why Amazon might have brought it forward is to say to workers, look, we're listening, you don't need a union. And, but without a union, workers are left individualised. They're left, you know, if they're in the gig economy, classified as self-employed, they have no right to address um, when they might be unfairly dismissed. They have no other sorts of rights in terms of sick pay and other things. And it's really those changes within the work, like within the, the labour market that we're seeing of increasing numbers of people who are self-employed but very low-paid self-employed, um, often bogusly, more and more people um, working through agencies where they have fewer rights than normal employees. Um, and it's those shifts that we need to see changed and pushed back across the whole of the labour market. And so a raise in wages is part of the answer, but it, another important part is that workers are able to sort of have that engagement that can come from a having a recognised trade union, where you're able to sit down with an you know a trade union can sit down with an employer and say, look, we both want this company to be successful, and we, but we want to make sure that the the benefits and the wealth that's created through um, you know through the company moving into new areas and growing and all the rest of it is adequately shared between those people who actually make the profit and the people who manage the company. 
Um, and without a union, it's very difficult to see how that's going to happen. And so whilst the $15 is welcome and you know, should be seen as a big win from the hundreds of thousands of workers who've been taking action across the US, who've really been changing the weather about low, low pay, and they've been saying that, look, we work long hours, we work hard, we have families to support, we work for highly profitable companies. And so it's absolutely right that we receive the wages that, that we need in order to live basically a decent life. And is there any, I mean, because sort of zero hours uh, pay seems to have become very prevalent in the last sort of 10 years, especially since the, the, the crash. I mean, was there ever an argument for it? Was there ever an argument for sort of variable hours like that? Or has it come out of purely kind of company greed and, and, a, and a wanting to um, kind of deplete workers' rights? Where, where's it, how's this started? So what we've kind of seen over the last, sort of 20, 30, you know, 20, 30 years really, is an erosion of workers' rights in the workplace. And often that's come from attacks upon trade union rights um, and the ability of trade unions to go into workplaces and represent workers and have good, you know, good quality negotiations with employers about how to make sure that the company's working in a way that, uh, you know, benefits both owners of the company and also the people who work for the company. And so what we've seen is this flexibilization, the growth of what's sometimes called flexible work, sometimes called insecure work. And that's been part of a kind of larger trend. Um, and that larger trend has multiple effects. One, it's meant that wages have kept relatively low because workers are less able to um, demand higher wages when they're living under the constant threat of losing the hours they need to survive. But it's also meant that companies haven't been investing adequately in productivity. If you can switch on and off your labor supply on a whim, then there's very little incentive for companies to invest sort of more broadly in the upskilling workers, in improved technology to improve the productivity and so on. And so what we're seeing is a kind of labor market that's created where there's a big section of the workforce that's on very low wages on insecure terms that isn't actually driving up productivity and that harms the economy as a whole. Yeah, I was going to ask you, there, there must have uh, much wider implications for this because I know uh, I've sort of read about how it affects employment figures because it looks like quite a lot of people are being employed, but it's only for very brief amounts of time and it must does it also affect kind of wage stagnation and, and other areas like that yeah so we know that there's a there's a penalty um for people on zero hour contracts that they're um on average about 93 pence per hour penalty for working on a zero hour contract compared to a worker who's not on a zero hour contract and that's a comparison done by the resolution foundation with workers who are doing similar jobs and so there's clear evidence that insecure work keeps wages down and that's really what we've seen massively since the financial crisis of 2008 is that the growth in insecure work um, even as companies and the economy as a whole and GDP has been rising that's not been shared back with workers um, in terms of increased spending and that's damaging to the economy more broadly but it's also I think important to remember that um, uh, in flexible working isn't blind to gender and race or migration status. The workers who've seen the largest increase in uh, insecure work or temporary jobs in the five year, you know, between is around 58% for black and minority ethnic workers. They've seen the largest increase in temporary work. Equally, migrant workers are overrepresented in insecure work and as are women. And so what we're seeing is that kind of bifurcation of the um, labor market where increasing numbers of people, particularly those who are already marginalized, are forced into work that is insecure, where they're unable to plan their futures, invest in their, you know, make savings and live, you know, are living very much week to week, whether they'll have the hours they need to meet the bills or pay the rent and so on. And so there's this kind of wider issue that's taking place in terms of flexible work that it goes beyond just low pay or the economy in general to what is this doing to us as a society in terms of um, different groups of workers, those who are already marginalised, being on the insecure work, while some groups um, maintain their kind of more higher quality jobs and better pay. And that really is a problem more generally across society as a whole. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. 
Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Velour XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And we'll be back with Owen in a minute. But first, if you've never heard of Universal Credit before and someone told you the name of it, you'd be enthralled, right? I mean, it sounds like a system where you could just use, say, one card wherever you travel in the galaxy. Um, you know, or maybe it sounds like a tagline for a sci-fi film. Star Trek, Universal Credit, Guardians of the Galaxy and the Universal Credit. Sadly, however, in reality, Universal Credit is much less an exciting intergalactic futuristic invention and more the opposite of a gift that keeps giving. Uh, don't know what that'd be. A theft that keeps taking? Probably. Well, ever since it was announced in 2011 by then-Secretary of State for Work and Pensions and always angry thumb Ian Duncan Smith, Universal Credit has been, to put it lightly, a mega shit show. Its original intention was to combine six different benefits, including unemployment, tax credits and housing, into just one monthly payment, like the sort of Vidal Sassoon wash-and-go of benefit schemes, but with a less catchy slogan, and pushed by a man whose hair likely fell out just to get away from such a cruel, cruel brain. I'm not saying it was a bad idea from the start, but aside from all the technical and management failures that mean the cost of rolling it out has risen from £2.4 billion to over £15 billion, meaning that it's likely to cost more than the original benefit system and will now arrive five years later than planned. I mean, and that already sounds like it's being done by a badly written stereotypical builder who tells you it'll be a two-day paint job, but six months and 14 gallons of tea later has replaced your entire roof and rewired the street. Aside from all that, there have also been warnings since forever that by not just sending housing benefits to landlords, rent may go into arrears more easily, causing a rise in evictions and homelessness, a delay in first payments, meaning earning claimants were going weeks without any money whatsoever, and now, this past week, for the first time ever, Work and Pensions Secretary and Hell's 1997 Eurovision entry, Esther McVeigh, admitted that actually, thanks to a series of cuts by former Chancellor with skin made of cling film, George Osborne, Universal Credit will be making some people worse off than they were before. Brilliant! Reports from the Resolution Foundation say 3.2 million households are likely to lose £48 a week, and the policy and practice report says actually it'll be £52. So it costs more than it should, it's taking longer than it should, and it will cause a rise in poverty and homelessness. So why are a party who insisted for years that they wouldn't reward failure, keeping something that's had so many fails, it could almost be a highly successful YouTube channel? The government have, of course, defended universal credit by saying that people can just do more work to increase their income, which isn't that helpful if you're not able to, or like many recipients of benefits, already working. And it looks like the only way to save universal credit is with at least another £2 billion cash injection, which makes you wonder why universal credit doesn't just try and actually work to support itself. Get off your ass. So now, Chancellor at the Exchequer and man who's been clinically dead for at least 15 years, Philip Hammond, has to decide whether to save it in the budget in two weeks. And if so, where on earth he'll get the money from? A number of Conservatives are threatening to block any further rollout of the system unless it gets funding. Former Prime Minister's sad hairless cat John Major and man increasingly looking like he's wearing a rubber mask of his own face, Gordon Brown, have both spoken out against it, saying it'll be a disaster on the scale of Thatcher's poll tax. 
In classic Labour style, Shadow Chancellor and children's football team manager who's always let down by the kids, John McDonnell, said he backed scrapping Universal Credit altogether, while on the other hand, Shadow Foreign Secretary and scariest mum in the playground, Emily Thornbury, said it just needs reform, and Baroness and generic 90s Britpop lead singer tribute Shami Chakrabarti says it's just a brand problem. Sure, because maybe if it was called something less grandiose, people would expect less from it. Great plan. Let's all save money, keep it as it is, but just refer to it as the detriment system, or even more childishly, Pooniversal Credit. So far, the Department of Work and Pensions seem to just have a tough-it-out attitude. Esther McVeigh says they have made tough decisions and some people will be worse off. While DWP Minister and Captain Giant Smugface Alok Sharma defended increased food bank use in Parliament by saying, look, there are many reasons people use them, it's not just universal credit. Well, yes, there are many reasons people use them, but they all come under the overall heading of poverty, which is largely caused by the DUP not giving people any money to live on at all because universal credit is fucked. So now all eyes are on if the Chancellor decides to tough it out as well, and if it's universal credit that gets made redundant or given a pay rise. Meanwhile, it's been revealed that 22 charities working with universal credit claimants have been given a gagging clause banning them from criticising Esther McVeigh or they could lose funding. And these were put in place by office wanker Damien Green when he was head of DWP, but they're clearly an attempt to avoid further press for universal credit overall. But let's be fair, unless Philip Hammond decides to gag a universal credit altogether, its effects will very much speak for themselves, and it's only going to be a matter of time before McVeigh and her insistence that everyone just shuts up and deals with a worse life means she'll be signing on any day now, as it's obvious that neither her or universal credit are at all fit for work. And now, back to Owen. I mean, is there also, you know... Has there been increasing kind of mental health issues with it? Because I mean, I, I'm a, I'm a self-employed, you know, comedian, and I, you have months where you're not sure if your wages are going to get paid on time, or if, you know, if work's going to come through, and it can be quite uh, upsetting. So if you've got that as a, a regular job on your zero hours contract, that can't be good for people's kind of uh, mental health welfare. Yeah, I think there's clear evidence that there's much higher levels of anxiety and depression amongst workers on insecure contracts. Um, and part of what is happening there is that the reason for employers to use insecure contracts is not just in terms of like variability of hours. It's not just that they're trying to keep up with a market which says they need you know, a flexible workforce to meet the, the needs that the company has for labor at a particular point. Because we're seeing the growth of insecure contracts you know, in areas like care work, um, education and even on the high street high street stores are very able to predict with quite a degree of accuracy how much how much sales they're going to have at any particular point and so if if it was just driven by employers needs for flexibility in the workforce we wouldn't have seen the kind of growth that we've we've seen across the labor market of the number of people on insecure contracts what it in actual fact is also doing is showing the ways in which it gives um, employers a greater ability to discipline and to discipline workers through having that constant threat of um, removing future hours that a lot of workers are faced with a situation where they don't know whether their manager is going to give them the hours they need in the future or not and that's reflected in kind of figures that have come out showing around the intensity of work so more and more people are working very very hard and working for at a very high speed. And that work intensity also has its impact upon um, the well-being of workers in terms of you know, mental health issues, as you've described, but also in terms of like the kind of lives that they can leave. It erodes people's ability to spend time with family, know when they're going to be able to you know, have a shift or not have a shift or plan for the future, you know, week to week, whether they're going to be available to pick up the kids from from you know, childcare or and these kind of issues, and so really the, that's kind of one of the driving things that's taking place in the economy is about wages to some degree, but we've had raises in the um, in the minimum wage, but it's also about that intensification of work that so many people are left in this precarious position where they have no security of knowing whether they're going to have the the work that they need going forward, and that discipline as well, that use of the threat of taking hours away is not blind as well we must remember to race gender or migration status workers who are already marginalized because of those you know oppressions from those things are those who are most likely to suffer um when you know managers are unaccountable for who they give hours to and when we see workers you know if, if we talk to workers from mcdonald's tgi fridays 
Weatherspoons and others, what you often see, and across the economy more generally, what you often see is low-level supervisors having an entirely arbitrary decision-making over who gets with shifts. We hear stories of workers being, you know, if you fall out of favour with the manager, you'll get the antisocial hours or you'll get the wor- what are considered the worst shifts. Um, and that obviously re-embeds discrimination within the labour market. It's both a cause of discrimination and it's also an effect of discrimination. It's an effect because workers who are uh, already marginalised, their work is more likely to be considered suitable for being put on an insecure contract and it's a cause of it because it weakens those workers' ability to demand basic rights at work. And and what's, I mean, because both we've as I said, it's been in the political sphere for quite a few years now, and both Conservatives and Labour have said they're going to aim to tackle zero-hours contract. But again, I mean, just in the last few weeks, we've had a story about uh, Conservative MP Ben Bradley asking people to do unpaid work for him, and then we had the story of the Labour conference uh, had the staff at the venue, which I know weren't hired through them, but they were on zero-hours contract. So are any of the political parties making right steps towards tackling this with any kind of effective uh, policies and and what should they be doing i mean because it sounds like mcstrike and unions are having um sort of more power over this than any any of the political parties are well um the government uh did a review into what they called modern forms of employment and the, the outcome of that was really um disappointing in that it didn't really tackle the issue around worker status. There's another consultation that's been run on that. And this is where there's a hierarchy being created between people who are employees, people who are what are called workers under the law, and then self-employed. And because workers don't have the ability to sort of really challenge their employer, they're often put into the self-employed category or put into a worker category, and they're not able to challenge their employer to say, these are the rights I need, because their position is so weak that they're dependent upon their employer. Um, the Labour Party has brought out various different proposals to tackle this, should it get into government. Um, and you know, other parties as well have, have talked about the kind of policies that they'd need. But really, I think the message from the strike, from workers who are coming together, is that if you want to build and tackle these issues, it's workers coming together who are the agents in creating that change. So we saw that a little bit with the implementation of the higher minimum wage, that um, you know, when the government announced the, uh, what they called the national living wage, it's not a real living wage, um, lots of employers said, OK, well, we're going to have to do this because that's now the law. But what we'll do is we'll take, stop paying for breaks, we'll stop paying overtime, and we'll cut back the number of hours that, that workers um, are paid for. And so even though the, on paper the wage went up, the reality for many workers was their wage packets didn't go up by nearly the same amount. And that's because workers weren't in a position organized into trade unions to, to to debate with their employer about how that should do and it's, a lot of the economy is stuck in this low paid um low productivity kind of work that means that we're not creating the kind of industries that are needed to create good paying well-paid jobs that you know provide for people i know that uh, when i emailed you with some questions you said this was sort of this could get complicated but the dreaded question is is Brexit going to make this, does it have the possibility to make this worse? I know uh, they were talking the other week about the UK joining the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which, uh, as, as far as I understand, could really threaten workers' rights. Is this a danger? Should we be concerned about this? So, in terms of Brexit, there's, there's a few different ways that it can affect workers' rights. So the first is that currently quite a lot of the rights that you enjoy at work are in EU legislation. They've come from EU legislation. And so there's a question of will they be um, transposed into UK, if Brexit happens, like will they be transposed into UK law and protected? Or will there be uh, a sort of incentive or desire from um, a UK government to weaken those laws in order to compete outside of the EU uh, on the basis that you know, the cheaper labour and the more flexible um, working environment. That's one of the parts of the stories. The other, and I think very important part of the story around Brexit, is what it does to migrant workers who make up a significant part of the UK's labour market. So currently, if you're an EU worker, you, by virtue of having an EU passport, you have the same rights and the rights to the same treatment as any other worker in the UK. But what we see with those workers who are currently in the UK, from not from within the EEA, so workers from overseas, from Asia or wherever, is that they're often on what are called tier two visas. And those workers, those workers are tied to a particular employer. So if you don't like the conditions that your employer's given you, then you're 
dependent upon your employer for your right to remain in the country. And that means makes it a lot harder for you to enforce any of your rights against your employer. There's a real risk that after Brexit, and we don't yet know what the immigration system after Brexit is going to look like, will create a lot of migrant workers who are heavily dependent upon their employers for their right to remain in the country. Um, and that is a major risk to everybody's workers' rights because employers can use that to drive down conditions for everybody. Um, and so what we want to see is a basic level that says all workers right across the labour market, migrant and non-migrant, have these basic rights at work that everyone should be entitled to, regardless of immigration status. The immigration system itself is an attack in, in lots of places upon workers' rights, on, upon workers' ability to claim those rights back against employers. So that's one of the major threats from um, Brexit in terms of workers' rights, is what will it mean for migrant workers in the future? That in terms of um, TPP and other trade agreements, what, what they often do is they look at... Um, they, they look at the... They're very rarely these days about um, tariffs, um, you know, the taxes that are paid at borders as to trade between countries. Overwhelmingly, what they do is focus upon regulation privatization and give rights to companies to challenge um, different regulations. And all of those things, that there's barriers to trade they're understood as, but it's things like public health, environmental legislation, and to some degree labor rights legislation as well. And they see these things as a barrier to the ability of companies to invest and move between across different countries and between borders. And that ability of companies to move across different countries places a downward pressure on workers' rights more generally in all of the, all of the countries where that are within a kind of particular trade agreement. And so if it was the TPP with lots of different um, Asian countries, then that conceivably places a kind of market pressure upon the UK to compete on low wages in those areas. What it also does is grants the right to companies in private cause to challenge um, countries over any regulation that they bring in, saying that that regulation might be a threat to the future profits of any multinational. And so what it's doing is granting very hard rights to companies and multinationals against um, regulations that are often made in the public interest, whilst often when it comes to labour rights, they have very weak enforcement and very weak sort of provisions within those agreements over how those will be enforced and how those like basic rights, which we should remember as human rights, will be enforced in the longer term. I just want to ask you one last question, which is uh, what I ask all the uh, interviewees that we have on this show, um, which is that apart from yourself and War on Want and all the work that you do, um, could you also recommend uh, to the listeners any other campaigns or writers or activists that you think they should follow or read up on if they're interested in tackling employment injustice uh, or workers' rights? Yeah, so um, the, obviously I think following the muck strike at Fast Food Rights on Twitter is a really good place to start. The TUC also produces a lot of really interesting um, research and analysis of what's taking place in the labour market. There's also groups like the Unite um, Hospitality branches who are really good to follow on social media and look at what they're doing. There's also some other campaigns um, Liverpool Time for 10 in Liverpool, there's Sheffield Needs a Pay Rise, which are city-based campaigns, which are campaigning to say, how do we as a city, or we in where we live, um, campaign to improve, um, to tackle low pay and insecure employment. There's also a group called Better Than Zero in Scotland who are doing amazing work to tackle low pay and organise workers into trade unions. There's a lot happening at the grassroots when you look at it. Um, and it's, you know, that movement, that lots of different people taking actions in lots of different places, which is, um, you know, what's going to be able to change this in the longer term. Thank you to Owen for having time to chat with me. Um, you can find Owen on Twitter at Owen Espley. Uh, that's uh, O-W-E-N-E-S-P-L-E-Y. Uh, and you can find War on Want at War on Want on Twitter or at their website, waronwant.org, where there is lots of information about their current campaigns and more importantly, what you can do to help. All the other links and recommendations Owen made will be on the partly political broadcast.co.uk website later in the week.
Owen very kindly moved my interview with him forward so it could be in this week's show uh, and not next week's after I had an interviewee drop out. So again, any recommendations or requests for interviewees or subjects to interview people about that you want to send in, it just gives me a higher chance of actually getting someone for the show every week um, rather than, you know, me doing a series of odd voices and pretending to be the authority on something like, I don't know, political taxidermy or being an activist for bigger porridge. Always want bigger porridge. I mean, you can see by those examples alone, it would be awful. So please send your suggestions uh, for who to interview or what to interview people about. Um, as always, uh, send them to at Parpolbro on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast Facebook group, the contact page on partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk or by email to partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or you could draw it in giant chalk letters on a massive hill like the CERN Abbas Giant. But it's due to be quite rainy for the next few weeks and chances are you'll get a cold doing all that outdoor chalk work and the cold will be so bad your ears will block and then when I finally interview whoever you've asked me to, uh, you'll miss the show. So overall, probably just best to email, isn't it? Hmm... And that's all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. Thank you once again for taking these particular sound waves into your head antennas. And please don't forget to like, subscribe and review the show on whichever pod app you use. Or if you don't use a pod app, why not just write it across the front of your computer screen or Amazon Echo or whatever with a permanent marker and send me a pic. Also, if you can, please donate to the Patreon or Ko-fi. And if you can't, just aggressively tell people to listen to it before you write your podcast review on their mug or pet or face with a permanent marker. Because maybe you accidentally sniffed it when using it last time and now everything seems unclear thanks to Acast for stashing this show in its audio safety deposit box and to my brother the last skeptic for all the plinky plinky noises throughout this will be back next week with a full length episode hopefully i will stop gargling uh, razors by then and um, by which point theresa may will have made a statement to parliament to let them know that something will happen on brexit one day but it hasn't quite yet but it probably will do soon but who really knows and the day it might happen could be tomorrow or years away but hey isn't it just nice that we're all here together and maybe the true brexit is just the brexit that we found along the way Bye! This week's show was brought to you by Claire Perry's Personal Fracking Kits. With Claire's do-it-yourself package of a tin of beans, a spoon, some aspartame meat, a rubber tube and a polythene bag, why import gas when you'll be creating your own within hours? Claire Perry's Personal Fracking Kit, because when you make this much pointless hot air with your arse and mouth, you may as well use it for something. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.